I, I, have, uh, I have an ear infection, so I can't hear thunder today. And um, so um, if Bob turns me off, I won't even know the difference. And uh, you guys would get a break today. Um, I, I did miss uh, hearing uh, the worship in its fullness. I, I was, uh, but I could hear Dave Brown on the bass. So it was a blessing today, brother. So amen. So uh, praise the Lord. Um, many of you have heard like the frog in the kettle illustration. Now, I just want to say like, first of all, uh, kids, this is not an encouragement from the pastor to go home and do this. But uh, many of you know this, that, um, you know, if you're wanting to eat a frog and you, you put him in the, in the kettle of water and you put it on the stove and turn it up real hot, he'll jump out. But if you raise the temperature of that water little by little, he'll stay right in there until you're able to raise it to boiling and boil him to death. Um, this, you know, this is, again, not a science project, okay? But what this is about is, is to remind us of something. When sin suddenly appears, normally, as Christians, we have the ability to go, whoa, that's bad. But when something is, creeps in gradually, little by little by little, we have the tendency to become acclimated, spiritually acclimated to that sin, it then becomes normal to us, and before long, we accept it as it's okay. This church in Corinth lived in a city of debauchery and gross sin. The church was becoming used to it. It was the background that they came from, and they're living in the middle of it. And so, as a matter of fact, they begin to pat themselves on the back for not being too judgmental or too legalistic. And I guess uh, probably their tagline would have been, um, come to First Baptist Corinth, the tolerant and relevant church. They saw themselves as having some kind of virtue for being so willing to overlook sin in its own congregation. And Paul is going to confront that head on in this fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians. Now, um, again, if I'm not explaining the scripture today, then ignore what I'm saying. If I'm not illustrating the scripture, ignore it. If I'm not applying the scripture, ignore it. But if I am, then you must take that as being from God. And you must do something with it. And you're either going to leave here mad or glad. And it, you, you just have to decide. It's just up to you. This is not me against you. This is the word of God instructing his people. And that includes me as well. Okay? So I, I, I'm not apologizing for the scripture. I'm just telling you to brace yourself. Now, um, I, I want you to see the, the, the Lord is going to rebuke this church but he's also going to provide a remedy for their tolerant view of a terrible vice. And so I've called this sermon the shocking state of the church. And considering what all is going on in our world today, and specifically what's going on with some of the things in Southern Baptist Convention, but let's don't throw rocks too far. Let's consider our own church and our own lives, okay? So let's take uh, this and, and just, again, we'll organize it here step by step. And so in verse 1 and 2, what you have 
is the accusation against the church. So look what it says in verse 1. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So here's the accusation against this church. And here's what Paul's saying about them. First of all, they embraced a wicked practice. He said there's a report, and it's widely known, that there is, not there was or has been, but there is, there's a continuing problem of sexual immorality among you. And so this sin, first of all, these are, this is important. This sin is habitual. He uses the word is. That's a verb that means it's ongoing. And then on down in verse uh, 2, uh, in the end of verse 1, the second half of it, the word has is also ongoing. So what's happening here is this is unrepentant sin. There is a person claiming to be a Christian who is a member of this church at Corinth who is presently practicing this sin. Now, look, it's not only habitual, but look at the heinous nature of it. This man is living in sin with his stepmother. They're having a sexual relationship. This is something forbidden by the scriptures. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 11 says that uh, this is the kind of sin that's, uh, you, you're guilty of it, you, you get stoned, okay? So it's death penalty. So God says it's a heinous sin. But not only that, even the pagan Roman law said that this was wrong. It, they also forbade this practice. And the point that Paul is making here is that all sins are sinful, Okay, I mean, that's a given. But some are more scandalous and repulsive. Not all sin is treated the same way, ladies and gentlemen. And so this particular person is flaunting this practice. And the church, what's even worse is this, the church is okay with it. So they embraced a, a wicked practice and then they exhibited worldly pride. In verse 2, Paul says, and you're arrogant. What, what is he talking about here about this church? This church had adopted an attitude of tolerance and they saw this as some kind of glorious virtue. Look how accepting we are people. They probably called themselves loving is probably what they did. They viewed any correction of this as legalistic and lacking in grace. But the problem is that God's word confronts them right here. Instead of being proud of themselves, Paul said they should be mourning. And the word mourning there means to grieve like someone has died. They should be grieving over this. They should be hurting over it. 
They should have, that should have been their attitude. And then what action should they have taken as a result? He tells them. Let him who's done this be removed from among you. What church in our day and time would take that kind of action? Few. Hardly any. Why not? Because it's painful. Because there are repercussions. Because there's Facebook. But here's a question that I have for you. And please don't make me ask anyone this personally. Let's take this together. How in God's name can we deny membership to someone living in sin as a habit and a way of life? How can we deny them membership when we allow it among our members? Let me, let me throw out a lifeline here. The scripture says, if we judge ourselves truly, then we would not be judged. What, is, what does the Bible mean by that? 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. It means this. Take care of the matter yourself. You yourself take care of it. You know if it's wrong. You know if you're living a sinful lifestyle. You know if you're doing that, then take care of it. Then let your church leadership know that you have. Then we can help you. We can encourage you. You will not be rejected and we will disciple you. The accusation against this church, notice that Paul's not really saying a whole lot about the man. He's talking about this church not doing what they ought to do. Now, I want to let you know that we did send out uh, letters of invitation to about 70, 70-something units. I don't know how many people that includes the actual number who are members of our church. And we, you know, we politely call them inactive, but really uh, grossly disobedient for a number of years. That There's no Christian on the face of the planet that doesn't know that as a Christian, I mean, you could ask any lost people, any lost person out here, you know, what, is, what do Christians do? They say, well, they go to church. And it's, this is not a mystery. But these folks have been wayward and uh, AWOL for years. And you know how many responses we got? Zero. Their pastor politely and kindly invited them to meet him today. And they said, nah, no thank you. The next step will be some of our deacons will be calling those folks and like, what's up? And then after that, we can't stand by the profession of faith anymore. When they're on this membership role, what we're saying is we stand by your profession of faith. And we, we have no way of knowing if someone's really saved or not. We really don't know that. But what we can say is we're not going to lend our reputation and credibility to you anymore and so that's coming next so if any of those people are your friends or family members just let them know why 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 do why do that 
What difference does it make? It makes a lot of difference. Our members are supposed to be displaying the gospel. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're sinless. This, this man that's the point of contention here in, in, in Corinth, it's not that he committed a sin, even a terrible sin. That's not it. He's living that way and doesn't care. And not only that, neither does the church. Well, we got to be the kind of church that cares, right? And maybe by God's grace, it'll make some of these people mad enough that they'll talk to God about it and he'll finally confirm in their life that they don't know the Lord and maybe they'll get saved. Who knows? So I, that's just my strategy. I know it's a terrible one, but I, that's the way I do. So the accusation against the church. Now, look at the instruction. He gives some instruction here in verses 3 through 5. Paul says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you, as the church, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and that's what we're doing here this morning, right? In my spirit, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Could, could you imagine this? Could you imagine this church and they get this letter from Paul? And you know what they do is they read it like, okay, it's church time, everybody. And so they come to church on Sunday. Everybody's in there. And they're reading, and, and you know, they're, they're doing okay. I mean, they're reading these first uh, few chapters, and, you know, there may be a little bit of a sting about wisdom, you know, and they're relying on false wisdom, and a little bit of a sting. They got, like, you know, they know they've been, you know, dividing up behind leaders rather than uniting under Jesus. And so, like, we, we got some things we need to get right. We know that. Maybe they came to the altar and prayed together. And so then he gets to chapter 5, and the dude that's doing this is sitting right there. And the guy's reading it. You know, the pastor's reading it like, yo, boy, Paul, you know. And so, you know, he'd be tempted to skip this chapter. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, being in church um, for years, I'd never heard this chapter preached. Ever. And, um, and so, you know, it, this is why I, I'm like a really unpopular preacher. is because I preach stuff like this, you know. So I don't know. But, the instru- but he gives instruction. No, so what does he say? He, he gives an announcement, an announcement of expulsion. Verse 3, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul said, this is my view on it. And we could say, um, as, as Paul says, um, I've already pronounced judgment. He uses the word. Now, our cry would be, judge not lest you be judged. That's always our defense. The only verse in the Bible anybody knows. What, what does that verse mean? Judge not lest you be judged. That, that is a word to hypocrites who criticize other people in order to make themselves look good. Remember that whole section of the Bible there is about false professors. People that profess with their mouth that they know the Lord but they don't. And instead what they're doing is they're trying to uh, give off the appearance of being really holy. And then what they're doing is saying, see, I'm a lot better than this person. See, I'm a lot better. See how good I am. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to build up their self-righteousness. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul's not saying, I'm I'm better than anybody. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about here is this. In 1 Corinthians, this kind of judging means simply pronouncing sin as sin. That's what it is. It means to deal with it as a church. Now, when do you deal with it as a church? One, when the sin is habitual and the person will not repent. Two, 
The sinner is unrepentant and says so. And number three, Christ's name is being smeared in the mud. Now, we, we have to deal with our sin here as best as we can, as discreetly as possible. I, I, I don't know of, 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 you know, the first step here is like, you know, hey, call somebody out by name, you know, whatever, the congregation. I, I don't think that's very helpful unless their sin is so public and so heinous that even the people out there go, that's wrong, it's terrible. And the person is just flaunting that, then maybe that's what they need. The church needs to just call them out. And so this is what Paul's saying. You have got to do something. I already know what I would do if I were the pastor, the apostle says. But look at this next thing. This is important for you to understand Baptist polity. What, what that means is the way Baptists do church. The reason that the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention ain't the boss of me. No, nobody is Lord over this church but Jesus. And we don't, we don't have that, but some denominations do. But, but here, why do we do things? Why do we do congregational style of government? Now, again, we use democratic principles, but this is not a pure democracy here. It's more like a republic, like our nation is, right? So not every individual gets to have their way. It's not that you have representatives, you have people in committees, you have a pastor, it's a leader, and all that kind of thing. So it's not like pure democracy, but we do use democratic principles here a lot, and we do vote on the big things because it's congregational government. It's not denominational government. It's congregational I, I serve here by the will of God, but also I have I, I wield the authority of a pastor according to the choice of the church. The church has the final say on who stands in this pulpit, preaches the word of God, and provides biblical leadership over the congregation. The church finally says. How, how do we come to that? Well, verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, every business meeting is in the name of the Lord Jesus, y'all. We were talking this morning in Dory class, and you know people come from different places, different kinds of churches, and so on. And almost every person that comes to the Dory class, if they've had any church background at all, or any involvement church, there's hurt in in their history. Everybody, it's not unique. They've been involved in this church and, and just got hurt. What happens? What's happened most of the time? Most of the time it is poor leadership that doesn't know how to make sure that the people know and understand what it means to assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is not everybody getting their opinion heard. This is about discerning the opinion of the Lord Jesus. That's what we're trying to figure out. And so these people are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. And what does he say? With the power of our Lord Jesus, that means, with, the word there means the authority. The church assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, they have the authority of Jesus, and they are to do something with that authority. What are they to do? You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Do you see what we're saying? 
Even Paul, as an apostle, does not have the authority to excommunicate this man. Even the apostle Paul doesn't have the authority. Now, he is certainly using his influence. You know, he's doing everything that he can right here to say, here's what you people ought to do. But ultimately, the church decides. Do you see that? Ultimately, the church does. He's using his influence, but what does he say? You have to do this. Now, it may be that the church decides to have a council. They could say, okay, look, we want to get, you know, six of our most trusted members to hear this guy out and then let us know what they think we ought to do as a church. You know, you can handle this in a lot of different ways. But ultimately, it's the church. Now, what what is the church to do? They are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does this mean? Practically speaking, it means this. There is spiritual safety in staying within the confines of the covenant that we've made together. What's a covenant that we've made together? To look after each other. To promote discipleship and growth in Christ. To gather here together. We've made a covenant with each other. And let me just say this to you. And and hear me. And I I want to say this as kindly as I can. But that covenant supersedes and overrides every other commitment that you have in this community. Every one of them. It's first. It stands. Nothing else is more important. You've made a commitment under God that you would do that. It stands. It's a covenant between Christians. It's the strongest kind of bond. It's more important. It has greater authority than any other commitment that you're going to make. It's first. It overrides all the others. What are they to do then? This man is to be put out of that covenant. He's to be put outside of the fellowship of this congregation. They're not going to pray for him. They're not going to fellowship with him. They're going to let Satan have his way. Can you imagine praying for this guy at prayer meeting like this? Lord, we pray that you would let Satan have his way in Rufus's life. That's scary praying. I don't think I've ever heard that yet in a prayer meeting. Our problem is this. We think that we are ourselves individually able to deflect all that Satan throws at us. We think that we on our own, by ourselves, we are such a super Christian that we can handle Satan on our own. That's what we think. And the truth of the matter is the Bible is making it very clear That outside of the fellowship of a local church, you are easy game. What does destruction of the flesh mean? I I take it this way. It it seems to me that since it's set here against that a spirit may be saved, the destruction of the flesh, it, it appears to me then we're talking spiritually here. We're not talking about his body, even though destruction of his body may be part of the destruction of the flesh. But what it seems to be saying here is that when we do this, the result that we're hoping for 
is that he would become so miserable under the torment of Satan that it would mortify the power of the flesh in his life, that it would put down the dominance of the sinful desires of his flesh. He would recognize that having fulfilled the desires of the flesh has led him to a place of absolute misery. Why? Why do this? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It means that his spirit will be saved from loss and shame at the day of the Lord when Jesus comes. Remember, Paul prayed for the Thessalonians, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. We don't want to be ashamed at his coming. So why is the church doing this to this man? They're such a mean church. No, they're being unloving when they tolerate. And they're allowing the flesh to eat this man up. What they need to do is to arrest this situation. How are they going to get the man's attention? You want to act like the devil? Okay, go play with the devil for a while. We're going to let you. You go out there and gamble with the devil and you'll find out he'll rob your household. This is not about them, the man losing his salvation. It's about him being sanctified. That part of his salvation is what it's looking at. Now, that's instruction to the church. Now, again, what, what should be the attitude of this church when they do it? He says to them, you should be mourning. This should be done with tears. Not harshness, not meanness, not we got you. This should be like, we've done everything we know to do, buddy. And so now, you know. So what's the illustration? He says, well, what about you? Okay, so this is what they're trying to do in that man's life. So what effect does it have on the church then? What, what's, why is this important? So he gives an illustration here of the church in verses 6 through 8. And look at these verses. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, what he's doing here, he's using the Passover meal as an illustration. Okay? So, he gives here some reasons for purification. Why purify the church by removing this guy. Why do that? And his, his, his answer is very clear. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Some of y'all have done that friendship bread thing. And you know, you pass some of that dough on to somebody. And I, I think like you go to purgatory if you don't pass some on to somebody else. I don't know how that works, you know. But I know one time I came to our house. I'm like, well, give, give this to somebody. And man, you know, that stuff just keeps growing. Why? Because it has yeast in it. Now, you'll notice that when we do the Lord's Supper, um, the, the bread that we use, I think it's bread or styrofoam, but it, it, the bread, it, you know, any time it, it's unleavened, it doesn't have any yeast in it. That's why it doesn't rise. It doesn't spoil or anything. I mean, some of that has got to be at least 150 years old that we use. So it's just what it is. So when the children of Israel... 
were being delivered from their bondage in Egypt. And you remember the, the last plague upon Egypt was the death angel is going to come and he's going to take the firstborn of every household, go kill him. And the only way out was this you got to kill a lamb and you got to put the blood and apply it. Right? And so you apply the blood and then you're to bake bread. And the bread is to be unleavened because you could break it quick, bake it quickly. And it's not going to spoil. And you're going to take that on your journey as you go. But the unleavened bread stood for something. Yeast in the Bible is often used as an illustration for sin. And what he was saying to them was being delivered out of Egypt means that your sin has been taken care of. You now are unleavened bread. All y'all are unleavened bread. That's what you are. What you don't want is to allow a little bit of yeast, a little bit of sin back into your midst. If you do that, it will spread through the whole loaf. And so he's giving that illustration. And, and why? Why should we be different? Why should we care? Because we are unleavened bread. How did we get that way? Because Christ is our Passover. Christ has died for our sins. Therefore, our lives should demonstrate that very fact. That Christ has taken care of our sinfulness. He died on the cross in our place. He rose from the dead to prove that it's taken care of. And so the result of that should be that practice of sin should be out of our lives. We should be removing yeast from our lives. All of it. And if you read the Old Testament, you see all the crazy stuff about mold and everything else. You know, they go through dusting stuff. I mean, it's crazy trying to get rid of all this stuff. And the illustration is, when you're saved, you got to get rid of sin. You just got to quit doing it. And so to allow this in your congregation is the opposite of what you're saved to be. As a group, we have been saved in order that we would get rid of all the leaven. We would get rid of the yeast in our lives and from among our midst and to help each other to do that. We're required to live a certain way. You don't get to get saved and put it in your pocket and then go about your life. That's not how it works. What Jesus requires of us then is get rid of the leaven out of your lives. Get rid of the leaven. Get rid of the yeast out of my church. Get rid of it. Don't tolerate it. Why? Because a little bit of it spreads to everybody. What, you, what happens is, and it's like the illustration I was given at the beginning about the frog and the kettle. What happens is, when we don't get rid of it, out of our midst, and we tolerate it, it then becomes normal. And the next thing you know, somebody else is doing it. Somebody else is doing it. Somebody else, well, we all get away with it. So we're somebody, somebody. And so the next thing you know, it's a common practice. And the Bible does not give us permission to have common practice we are to have christ-like practice it's a different thing so the reasons for that is we don't want others to be drawn in to sin it's like cancer in the blood sin it spreads through the whole body through the whole church if it's not dealt with the results of purification then what do you do let us celebrate the festival paul's not saying hey as christians we need to celebrate passover he's not saying that but staying true to his illustration here he's saying then we can joyfully worship. Why? Because we're worshiping with lives that are unleavened. That means lives that are sincere and truthful before the Lord. Well, that's the illustration he gives. Now, here's a clarification. Um, 
we, we have done a disservice to our churches, I think. Um, so many pastors wanted to be Billy Graham. And so they want to have a Billy Graham crusade every church service. And so they preach uh, salvation. You know, people come to Jesus every church service. And so then the practice has been the, the people say, okay, we're supposed to evangelize, which is a great thing. And so they go out there and say the same thing to lost people that they've heard in the church. This ain't Billy Graham crusade. You are not to take what you're learning here and take it out there. This is for us. You're trapped in this box and you have to take it, okay? So this is for us. This is not for us to go out and moralize or try to correct people's behavior out there. Nope. The, the, the only people that do that is the police force and school teachers. That's about it, okay? So this is not, and well, and Brother Mark back there. But we're, we're not, this is not what we're doing. Okay, this is for us. And so Paul says this. He wants to make sure we understand what's going on here. I wrote to you in my letter, not this one, but a different letter that we don't have. But he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And so the church must have thought, well, good grief. We can't even go to the store. I mean, sexually immoral people are out there everywhere. What are we going to do? And so he says in verse 10, he's clarifying, he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Because if that's what I meant, he said, since then you would need to go out of the world. The only way to avoid those people is to not be in the world anymore. In other words, to be dead. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone. And, and here's the qualifier who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunker or, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And the answer is yes. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I started to entitle this sermon, The Purge, but I thought that might be going a little far. <laughs> the clarification for the church. So he, he gives us a couple of things here. First, the jurisdiction of church discipline. And the jurisdiction there is in verses 9 and 10. Church discipline and correcting people's sin does not apply to outsiders. It applies to insiders. Us, not to them out there. This applies to us. It's like what Peter said. You know, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And then it goes from there. So we're to take care of us. We're not to, you don't need to go to Kenworth tomorrow and, and get on the next person and start lecturing someone that you think is in sin. I've got news for you. All of them that are not Christians are in sin. They all are. So that, that's not what they need. Now, if you're in, a, in an evangelistic conversation with them, yes. If you're in that, you're going to have to reveal to them, look, here's how God sees your life sinful. You, you've got to get that. You know, but that's totally different, trying to lead them by grace to the grace of Christ. That's one thing. But to try to, protect, to, to correct their behavior by nagging them to death 
do you think that really is effective? You walk around like, I'm so holy, man, you just better not do that in my presence. Good grief. I need to go over there and tell on y'all at work, and then you'd stop doing that. that. That's not it. We're not better. We, we all were out there. We all were outside of Christ at some point. And how did we behave? Oh, I know. Some of you are so timid that you wouldn't do any big sins. But let me just tell you, that's just because of your personality. It's not because you were more holy than anybody. You would have done it if you'd been brave enough. Chicken. So again, I just want to drive this home. Don't leave here, you know, with your gospel gun loaded for the next lost person you can find. You know, this is not, this is about us. Okay. And then next, look at the application of church discipline. He says, now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. This is the target. Someone in your congregation who's claiming to be a follower of Christ, and yet they're living in sin and they won't repent. Those are the people you have to disassociate. But not just because they're sexually immoral, but also for ones that are greedy. Also for ones, see, an idolater, a reviler, someone who's slandering everybody, a drunkard, a swindler. This is the kind of people they are. This is not they've committed a sin. This is the kind of people they've settled in this lifestyle and this is how they're going to live. That's not a Christian witness. It's not a Christian testimony. So what is the church to do? Paul says it again. He says to purge them from among you. And he says this person's an evil person. Now, what does this mean? Uh, Verse 11, maybe I should clarify this as well so you don't starve anybody. Not even to eat with such a one. This doesn't mean that, you know, if you see them at, you know, Burger King, you have to run out of the building. This is most likely talking about the Lord's Supper. The, 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 the early church, they had a meal before the Lord's Supper, then they celebrated the Lord's Supper. So it's probably saying they should not be a part of partaking in the Lord's Supper. Don't give them that grace. Don't do anything. Don't let them do anything that would ease their conscience at all. Okay? Now, what do you do with something like this? Uh, chapter 5. Ye, are, are y'all having fun yet? This is, this is great. What Sunday is this? It's got to be some holiday Sunday. I don't know. So, uh, what do we do with it? A couple, couple of things. So, let me uh, wrap it up with a little bit of application for, for all of us, our, our church and ourselves individually if you call yourself a Christian then judge yourself judge your life is there is there a practice something I'm constantly doing my living in in a certain way that even the pagans out there would go dude that is not how a Christian acts Is, is there something like that in my life then here's what you need to do judge yourself repent change and get help. You, you, just, you just got to. Uh, you know, well, I can't become. No, no. Jesus didn't say repent unless it's hard. Repentance is absolute. You just have to. 
you've got to change. Make change. We, you know, as church, we're constantly, as individuals, constantly trying to change, be transformed in the image of Christ. None of us have this down yet. But for God's sake, don't just blatantly live in sin, a sinful relationship, a sinful situation, and just go, ah, don't do it. And, and let me just say this to you. I don't want to catch you. I don't want to. I, I don't want to deal with it. So catch yourself. But then it comes to this. If not, if you're not going to do anything, then why are you defying and challenging your church? Why are you doing that? If you've just decided that you're going to live sinfully and you know that we are under orders that if you will not repent, that we are to purge you from among us, then then please don't make us do that. Just come to your leadership and say, look, I'm not living up to a church covenant, what we've agreed on. I'm not doing it. And I just want to let you know, pastor, so please remove my name from the church membership so that we won't have conflict. You know what that does? Clears the air. If I see you at Kroger's, we're still good. We know where we stand. But if you're going to pretend that you're going to do this, but you're actually doing, living a different way, And you're just waiting for us to finally catch up to it so that we have to do something. Don't be mad at us. We should be mad at you because you have forced us. Some of y'all raise children. Um, Why do they force you to just... I'm I'm just going to say it. I'm old school. Give them a spanking. We spanked. Why? I'm like, look, okay, this is just a matter of like picking up a toy. Don't, don't, for, and you know, it would break my heart because like, you're forcing me. I, I don't want to do this. Well, in the same way, and don't worry, it wasn't Nicholas. I think Nicholas got like two spankings his whole life. That was it. But, but if, if we, you know, if, if, it's, if this is a situation in your life is this way, man, just be sincere and honest enough just to say, hey, I'm just really not interested anymore in keeping my membership agreement and I, I don't want to be. And listen, you're still welcome to attend. You can still attend. You can still come here preaching the word and, and ignore it and stuff. You're still welcome. You know, you're still welcome to hear how you ought to live and just go out and totally ignore it. You can still do that. Nobody's stopping you. It's fine. But let's just have a clear relationship, you know. And let's know where we stand. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, I want to say this. There's some good news here. Because... In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, it appears he's had enough. Now, don't be overly harsh. Let him come back. The man repented. He did. He repented and he came back. Isn't that great? You know, I, 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 you know a, a, a woman that had been in our doorway class a little bit and during that period of time, she recognized that she was living in sin and she talked to Julie and I and so we told her you know hey you need to straighten that out and she did you know it it took her a while she never did join here but you know she came and told us recently hey look you know I've been married for two years and things are going great we're involved in church I just thought what a victory what would it have been like if we would have said, oh, honey, it's okay, don't worry. 
we're all sinners here, just come on in. You know, what if I did that? She would have never gotten her life straightened out. Now, not everybody, not everything is a victory story like that, right? Some of them are mean, right? And some people just get mad. And that's okay too, you know. Uh, but how in the world are we ever going to help each other to live for Christ if we just ignore it all the time? And so we're we're not looking to catch people in anything. Everybody here has a besetting sin. We understand that. Everybody knows we're stragglers. We're trying to make this this journey together. We're on a path stumbling and carrying on trying to follow Christ. We all know that. Every one of us here are, you know, we're like the, the, the publican that went up to the temple, wouldn't even raise his eyes, but be on his chest and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. We all are like that. We know that about ourselves. But for God's sake, if you're not going to try, at least have the courtesy to tell your church, I'm not going to try anymore. And so, brothers and sisters, I would say this. um, I'm sorry I didn't have time to carry on the process that we've started here, but we just have to purge. They're just people that have demonstrated they're not going to repent. And so, we need to wake them up and say, hey, then you're no longer one of us. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not mean-spirited. As a matter of fact, it's just simply obedience. And so I want to give you that courage. I want you to be compassionate. I want you to be kind. I want you to realize that every sin that someone commits, you yourself could so easily do that. You're not above it. You could fall away. You could be someone that we have to search for out there with the FBI. You know, we, we understand. We all know that about ourselves. But that's no excuse for saying we don't care. Live however you want to. Nope, that's not right. It's wrong. As a matter of fact, as a church, we're in disobedience when we take that stance. We're like this church at Corinth, so arrogant, so proud, thinking we're so tolerant and we're so loving and so gracious. And in reality, we just don't want to deal with it. Let's have a church that is as close as we can make it to pursuing Jesus with all we got. We're not talking about perfection from anybody. We're talking about direction. Everybody making the effort to live for Christ. Every one of us here, probably something in your life, think, hey, it may be gossip. It may be, you know, whatever. The sins of the tongue are probably the worst things, right? And so slander, there may be some sins, you're just, it's just eating you up. It's just time to repent to say, Lord, I need to do whatever I need to do to get past this. And I want to live for you. And I want my church to be one that's a, you know, it's like a light on a hill in, in Chillicothe. I want it to be a, a beacon that shines and that people can say, those people are warm hearted. They love Jesus. They love people, but they do hate sin. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would take your word and that you would let it seep into our hearts. Lord, some of these kinds of things are very, very difficult for us to hear, understand. Lord, let no one misunderstand that no church is on a witch hunt. We're not looking to find fault in each other. That's not what this is about. But Father, also help us to love you and to love your name and to love your reputation enough that when we have members that just won't repent and just will not change, that we are courageous enough to purge them from our midst. Lord, some here today living in sin, I pray, Father, that you would convict. 
I pray, Father, that they would understand that the time is now to make their life right with Jesus. And Lord, that they would open the door through repentance so that their church family can come alongside them and help them and encourage them. Father, I pray for each and every one of us that whatever besetting sin is we're entangled in right now and trying to get free, I pray, God, that you would help us to surrender that to Jesus. Let him bring the idol down in our lives and to return to wholehearted devotion to our Lord who is our Passover lamb who died for us. Not only that we would get to go to heaven, but that he would change our lives that we'd be more like him. Lord, these things we ask that you would do in our lives, in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.